Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, how big are the security risks surrounding the Tony Clement scandal? A viral doctored video featuring Jim Acosta from CNN? And a U.S. judge has halted the Keystone XL project. How's that going to affect us? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Tony Clement issue continues to make big news. And uh, because of all the many, many ramifications, of course, with uh, sexting and, uh, well, an awful lot that's going on. And there's some serious concerns being raised in Ottawa right now uh, about uh, exactly what Mr. Clement may have been doing and uh, what the ramifications are, who is actually blackmailing him, and who else may be involved in this. How big is the security risk when it comes to something like this? I want to bring Phil Gursky into the conversation from uh, the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Phil, good morning. Thank you so much for the time today. Dude in Hamilton this morning. Uh, obviously, the, the, the thing I think it's on a lot of people's minds right now is quite aside, and I don't mean to be dismissive of, the the moral and ethical ramifications of, uh, of Mr. Clement's actions. Uh, does engaging in this kind of sexual misconduct actually make him a security risk? Not necessarily. Um, the fact that Mr. Clement was a member of the Parliamentary Committee on National Security Intelligence obviously is an issue that you raise and raise correctly. But there's nothing to date that I've seen uh, in the news, uh, in open source, <clears throat> excuse me, that suggests that the blackmail has anything to do with his status on the committee. It seems to be purely an extortion, a blackmail, because of this, as you said, the texting and the, and the photographs that he shared. And so unless there's something they were not being told, I don't see an obvious national security nexus in the sense that somebody is trying to extort information on sensitive intelligence matters from Mr. Clement because of his actions. Is there going to be an investigation into this, Phil, to at least explore that and dismiss that as, as a possibility? I would be very surprised if there's not, Bill. They're going to overturn every stone here and, and look exactly, you know, what is the nature of the blackmail? Uh, what was the correspondence that Mr. Clement received from the blackmailer? What were they asking for and things like that? And if they can determine who it is, that might be an interesting <clears throat> excuse me, angle to this. You know, if it's a Russian, that might mean one thing, whereas if it's some guy in a basement in Slovenia, that means something completely different. Uh, the Chinese have been mentioned. Uh, the, obviously, there's a lot of concerns about the Chinese security or lack of security to do with Chinese uh, influence in, in Canada right now. So, I, I, as you mentioned, every stone will have to be lifted up here and see what's underneath it. I think you're right. And, you know, it's funny. We've all been, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia for the past couple of years. Obviously, with the, the Trump election in 2016, the possibility of collusion or influence. And, and we're right to look at the Russians. I mean, they have to kill people abroad, by the way, like in the U.K., but I think that China's kind of flying under the radar in a way, and, it, and a lot of uh, intelligence services, including my own, my own former service thesis, is raising the issue of, well, China's kind of doing nasty things too, so if this were to be tied to China, that's an interesting wrinkle. I'm not exactly sure what it means. I haven't really thought about it, but as you said, well, they'll, 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 they'll look, do their investigation, try to figure out who's behind it, and if there's anything more than just a pure blackmail and extortion attempt. Just on that, uh, I know we're going down a different tangent here, but it's interesting uh, that you, we bring this up today. Uh, because once again, there's been another call for the the Canadian government to ban Huawei uh, in Canada. That's already happened, of course, south of the border with a Senate committee that's very concerned about uh, Huawei's, uh, say, should we say, very strong links to the Chinese government. And uh, and that's a problem that apparently somebody in Canada investigated and say, no, I think it's going to be fine. Uh, now there are renewed calls to say, rethink your ideas here, guys. There's something going on. You're absolutely right, and it's interesting. So um, in addition to working at CSIS, I used to work at CSC, which is the Signals Intelligence Organization, early in my career. 
And, uh, you know, a person from the organization, from a, a cyber center there, said, oh, no, we're fine. We're fine with Huawei. We can do this. And the other part of the intelligence community is saying, wait, 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 we know, we're not sure we can do this. So there seems to be a debate within the Canadian intelligence community about whether Huawei poses a threat. And as you said, all of Canada's major partners, all the intelligence services that Canada deals most with, the, so- the so-called Five Eyes, the Anglo partners, have said, ah, no, there's no way we want Huawei in our country. So the government's under a bit of pressure. Um, if your allies are saying no and you're saying yes, what's the difference? What do you, what do you know that they don't or vice versa. So, yeah, the Huawei issue is not going away anytime soon. And, and I'm not suggesting it's, it's, uh, it's tied into this thing, but it just opens up this can of worms once again. I, I, I guess one of the questions that maybe should be asked to, hear, to, to try to gain some clarity on this, Phil, this, this committee that Mr. Clement sat on is relatively newly formed, uh, and it's, uh, it's closely affiliated, we were told anyway, with a number of the, uh, the intelligence agencies. So how much access do they actually have to some of that information? That's a really good question, Bill. So you're right. So the, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, NSI COP, as they call it, was, I think, created back in 2017. Um, and basically, it was in response to this, this perceived need that Canada was the only major partner within the, this Five Eyes Committee that did not have a parliamentary oversight committee. We did have CERT, Security Intelligence Review Committee, looked at CSIS. We had others smaller committees. And they said, let's consolidate all this in one committee, looks at the entire intel. So that's what they did. Uh, it seems to me, and I've got to be careful because I, I've never worked for NSI COP, I've never you know, been to their meetings, but it's fairly high level. It is an oversight review committee, so I don't think that the members get into the weeds of, you know, what is CSE collecting and how they're collecting it, what is CSIS doing? Because when you work for Intel, the two things that you protect with, with your life are your sources and your methods, how you get the information, how you collect it. I'd be very surprised if the committee gets into that kind of information. It'd be much higher level. What do you think about what's happening in X? What do you think was happening in Y? So I don't think they're, <clears throat> excuse me, that the committee members are exposed to that information, which means, if I'm correct, they wouldn't be in a position to divulge it under blackmail in the case of Tony Clement. I think it's a much higher level oversight committee than that. From your experience, I mean, I, I would think agencies like the RCMP and CSIS, for that matter, would uh, would push back if they thought, that, well, look, at, we don't want political interference here. This is not for politicians. This is this is way above their pay grade. Uh, absolutely. When you, like I said, when you work for Intel, you're more than happy to. I mean, in fact, it's right in the CSIS Act. CSIS is to collect information and advise the government on national security issues. So your advice is. is We've learned this. We think this is happening. We think you need to take, take note of it. It's not, oh, and here's how we collected it. You know, I talked to Bill this morning, and Bill told me, Bill's my source. You never get in that kind of detail because it's, it's what's called a need-to-know principle. The parliamentarians have no need to know. You're advising them, but they don't need to know how you've got it, where you collected it from. So you're absolutely right, Bill. There'd be a lot of pushback if, if this committee or anybody were to say, we want more information. Well, you have no need to know, and so we're not going to tell you. We're advising you. We're telling you what you need to know. You should be satisfied with that. Who does have access to that information then, Phil? I mean, at the highest level. I mean, we, we equate this, obviously, to the U.S. situation because it's it's portrayed so often in television and movies that we see, okay, it's it's at the White House and there's the uh, the, the situation room and things of this nature. Do we, do we have a similar setup in Canada? <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. I suppose, uh, at the end of the day, the Prime Minister... And certain ministers, like the Minister of Public Safety, Ralph Goodale, but, you know, not the Minister of Fisheries or the Minister of, I don't know, Housing would have any need, any need for this, so they, they wouldn't get it. But I suppose as a Prime Minister, if something was really, really important, he might say, I need to know exactly where this is from, so I, I know how reliable it is. 
But that's such an extraordinary situation. And we do know in the past that when presidents or prime ministers, <coughs> excuse me, have, um, you know, said publicly, we have this source, that's a bad thing because sources that are made public tend to disappear. Either they get killed by the people that they're following, or if they're technical sources, the people change the ways in which they communicate. So you, you, you betray the sources and methods publicly only in, in the most dire of, of, of circumstances because the, the possibility of losing those sources is very, very high. Well, we saw that happen a few years ago down in the States, didn't we, when Vice President, then Vice President Dick Cheney outed one of the CIA operatives, uh, I think it was in Europe, uh, and that caused a great deal of consternation. And we don't know what the end result, I guess, was, but uh, it's, it's never good when something like that happens. It never is. And I'll, I'll even go back further, Bill. Back in the mid-'80s, there was a, a bombing at a, US, uh, at a restaurant in Berlin in which some U.S. servicemen died. And this is when Ronald Reagan was president. And he basically said that we have, you know, we know it was the livings were behind it. And I was working at the time in the Intelligence Committee, and I know exactly how they got the information. And the fact that that um, the president um, made this public statement, let's just say without getting into details because I can't, that source of information disappeared really quickly. So when you make these decisions to make this information public, you have to have it in the forefront of your mind. What are the consequences of doing this? And if the consequences are that you lose a really, really important source that gives you great information, don't make it public. That's like, if, you, if you want to rece- keep receiving the information, don't do that. There are some comments I've seen on social media over the last couple of days, I guess, since this incident uh, came to the fore here, Phil, uh, suggesting, look, at what's what's the big idea here? Why would China and Russia be interested in Canada? Uh, you know, but I, I think it's a rather naive approach. I mean, there's as you mentioned, there's information gathering, and, and with the five eyes, there's an awful lot of shared information from just yeah. about all these other entities. I think you're right. And I, I, obviously, Bill, as someone who spent 32 years in the Canadian Intel, I think we do a really good job. But I, I would think that, all, all modesty aside, it's probably that the Five Eyes, as you said, this, this, this set of Anglo partners does share an incredible amount of intelligence and information. And if you wanted to get sort of attacked the Five Eyes, you attack it at its weakest link. And if Canada is perceived as, as the weakest link, and a way to get entry into the system and find out what all the other partners are saying, that's what you'll do. And, and you know... This is an amazing alliance that's been around since the Second World War. It is the it is the premier intelligence club in the world, probably in history. And the information is shared on the basis that you're going to protect it. So if the other partners think that Canada somehow is incapable of protecting information, there is a very real possibility that, you know, the, the taps aren't closed, but the taps are kind of dialed back a little bit. So you're not getting as much. I don't think this is going to happen in this case, Bill. I don't think it's a, it's a security issue. But if it happens more often, people say, hmm, can we trust the Canadians to protect our information? Maybe we can. So maybe we're going to be a little more judicious in what we share with them. Maybe not the most sensitive information. We, we'll, we'll hold that back. It's happened historically. The Americans cut off New Zealand many, many years ago when, in a tiff over um, nuclear-powered military vessels. So, yeah, there is some precedent for intelligence being, being uh, withheld because there's some kind of disagreement on how it's being handled. I think a lot of the questions that are being asked in light of the Clement situation here, Phil, is, is maybe based on, well, it's an uncomfortable truth, but I think it's something that you certainly know about, I certainly know about, and, and maybe more and more people in the public are, is that anytime politicians are involved in this, they're not trying to paint everybody with the same brush, uh, there's always the possibility that they have a different agenda. I mean, there's, we've seen this in the past, where there are relationships between politicians and the media, and I can curry favor by giving them some information that they wouldn't otherwise have. How much of a risk is it to expose some of this information to elected officials as opposed to, well, the experts like yourself? Yeah, there, there, there is that risk because those of us who worked in Intel, you know, we know we're indoctrinated, we're trained, 
it's made quite clear to us. You do not disclose this information. You guard it very carefully. And if you find yourself in an awkward position, please let us know ASAP so we can deal with it. I don't think the politicians, you know, they get the briefings, Bill, and they get the uh, overall sense of what's going on, but they're not in the business, and they don't understand how sensitive the information is in terms of its sources or methods. So maybe they don't maybe have the same sense of, this is really important stuff, and if I don't guard it appropriately and let it go, it's going to make a difference. And whereas those of us that are you know, born and bred in, in, into those types of agencies, uh, that's in our DNA, and that's how we go to work every day. We know what we need to do to protect the information. So I think when you're, when you're not in the club, if I can use that term, you don't have that appreciation. So on the other hand, there are clients. They're the ones we're, we're yeah. advising. So you, you can't cut them off. But you got to, you know, impress upon them how important this stuff is and how they should protect it. But even if those politicians are on the periphery, uh, there's a question about their qualifications and et cetera. Uh, if, if Ralph Goodale calls you uh, later on this morning, Phil, and says, look, it, I, I want your assessment as to how effectively we vet the people that are in that. And maybe it's the outer circle, but they're still involved in this. Do, do we go, do a good enough job at that? That's a good question, Bill. I don't know. I know the vetting process that I went through and that people, my colleagues went through, and it's very, very detailed. It's, uh, it, it really goes in, into quite, quite depth in terms of your activities, be they in the real world or online, your habits, your vices and things like that, anything that, that could possibly expose you to possible blackmail or extortion. I don't know that parliamentarians get the same vetting process. And I'm, I've been arguing the past 48 hours, this is the... I've been doing many of these interviews on this issue. Maybe we have to revisit how parliamentarians are vetted. So what vetting process happened for Tony Clement and the rest of the members? You know, this committee was formed a year ago. Were they just kind of made members of it because they're parliamentarians? Or, or did they go through a more a more onerous vetting process? And I would argue that maybe the latter should happen because if you're going to get access to sensitive information, you got to know how to treat it. And we, we, and we can only give access to those who understand that and who also don't have skeletons in the closet that they don't want to be made public. And it seems Mr. Clement had a few skeletons in his closet. Even as late as a year ago, as we're finding out now with some of the information that's being disclosed, uh, which tells me that you know this, this idea, this blackmail stuff and the sexting was going on long before he actually entered onto this committee. So somebody dropped the ball. Either they weren't forthcoming with information or they, over, they overlooked it. You, you hit the nail on the head, Bill. I, this is what I've been thinking about is that it... From what I understand, and uh, you know, more information is coming out, you're absolutely right. This behavior has been going on prior to his appointment to the committee. So clearly he either didn't disclose it, or it wasn't asked, or it was asked and he didn't say it. But you're absolutely right. There was a, a, a tremendous error made in terms of, you know, is Mr. Clement uh, a good person to have on the committee? Is he reliable? Is he trustworthy? Are there things that in his life that, you know, could be used to uh, use against him? Um, all those questions seem to have been no at the time or, or, or were asked. But I think if, you know, if you're Ralph Goodale or you're, you know, whatever, whoever it is that chooses the, I think the prime minister chooses members of this committee, you're asking yourself the question today, what went wrong and how do we change the process so that it doesn't happen again? Well, I can only hope they're asking those questions up in Ottawa today. Well, if they call me, Bill, I'll tell them exactly what they told you. So. <laughs> well, I'll let you go then, because I'm sure Mr. Goodale's on the phone right now. Uh, <laughs> Phil, I hope so. always a pleasure, Phil. Thanks so much for your perspective on this. You're, you're, you're welcome, Bill. Have a great weekend. You too. Phil Gursky, of course, is president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and a former member of CSIS, so he knows what of he speaks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I think nobody's, to nobody's surprise, we know that Donald Trump has an adversarial relationship with the media. He's already branded uh, the media as the enemy of the people, and there are those within his ranks, obviously, who believe that sort of thing. 
Well, it uh, went to a new level earlier this week, if that was even possible, uh, during a uh, White House uh, press conference uh, where the president was answering questions. Uh, And at that particular time, uh, CNN's Jim Acosta got up, and, well, this is what happened. They're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of you miles away. That, that's not an invasion. Honestly, you know what? That's not an invasion. Honestly, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let would me be ask, much better. If I, if I okay, may ask one enough. other question, Mr. President, if I may. That's enough. I was going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Mr. Excuse President, me. That's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if I may ask, on the Russia investigation. Are you concerned that... That you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the may Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, That's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation? Mr. President. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Uh, the obviously that's the the, the audio the, what was going on at the time and I'm sure most of us have seen the video as some versions of the video maybe more appropriately uh, a, a, an intern uh, apparently re- got up reached out and tried to take the, the microphone away from Mr. Acosta now uh, that was the incident and that as if that was not controversial enough the White House released uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders who's the press secretary for the uh, the president released an, a video on Twitter not too long after that that many people feel was doctored to make Acosta look aggressive towards the intern. Uh, and that's now the latest controversy and the latest chapter, I guess, in this war between the media and uh, Donald Trump. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Jacob Neheisel, who's, of course, assistant professor of political science at the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences with expertise in campaigns, elections, political communications, electoral strategy, and voter turnout. And uh, always a welcome guest. Professor, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you back on the program today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Just when we thought you could never get a more uh, ramped up and and adversary relationship uh, between uh, the media and the president of the United States, uh, this happened, of course, the other day with CNN's Jim Acosta. Were you surprised by this? No, I'm afraid that very little surprises me anymore (laughs) when it comes to Trump's relationship with the press. And 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 Acosta, by the way, is is one of those reporters that can be insistent. I mean, but basically, I you know I know when you watch television and you see these people. I mean, that's their job. I mean, you know, it's it's to get to the truth. And I know that there's a great deal of frustration with the White House press corps these days uh, because of some of the the answers or non-answers, I guess, that they're getting from Sarah Huckabee Sanders and for the president himself, I suppose. It just it just seems as if the temperature is really rising now, and just on both factions. I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, say what you want about journalistic standards, whether Acosta should or should not have a certain presentation of those questions. Uh, I, I think the the temperature in the room is just getting hotter as the the press corps continues to get pushback from the White House, um, if not, you know, outright uh, falsehoods and, and obfuscations. So I, I think that this is just going to continue to ramp up unless there's some kind of detente, and this just appears to be the next ratcheting up in, in, a, in a series of events. In, in a roundabout way, though, Jacob, it's, this is not the first time this has happened. I know in the Nixon White House, as Watergate was starting to brew, 
Uh, Dan Rather was was Nixon's pain in the butt. I mean, he at those press conferences, and Nixon had to, had a couple of those at the time. And, and I know that there was a great deal of anger and probably animosity towards those, but there have always been reporters that have been like that because they're trying to get to the truth. And, and, uh, I guess that's one element of this, uh, but the other element is the way that in this particular case, this president is pushing back in the way that he's doing. Right. So I mean, it, it's not like there's been a sort of golden era of, of uh, good feelings between uh, the, the media and the president. Uh, on the one hand, the, the president very much relies on the media uh, to reach a national audience, but also I'm sure at various times has expressed quite a bit of frustration with not getting sort of uh, his message out um, uncommented on or uninterrupted. And so I think that there's been a continual tension between the press and, and the executive in terms of how uh, various things are represented and, and what kinds of things are covered versus things that are not. And, you know, that's absolutely right. There's long been tensions between you know, a number of executives and how the media does cover things or the things that they don't cover. You know, I'm reminded of uh, Lyndon Johnson taking several uh, reporters to task for how they, they covered the uh, the Vietnam War. And uh, so it, it's it's been something that um, we've seen repeatedly. Uh, but for the most part, it's something that happens um, out of the public eye. And I think this president has taken it to a new level with the extent to which he's willing to tangle in the public uh, with uh, the press corps. But he set the bar, I mean, the minute he announced that in Trump Tower that day that he was going to run for president. And, and, and it only got worse as that campaign for the, for the nomination uh, went on. Uh, when he declared war against the media. And this was where you got the phraseologies like t- mainstream media, uh, fake news, which well, we know why by now, but the definition of fake news seems to be any story that the, the president doesn't feel comfortable with is fake. Uh, and, and sadly, there's a, an audience out there that buys this stuff. Uh, that's absolutely right. It's um, I won't say it's quite a time-honored uh, strategy of, um, you know, putting down or, or denigrating institutions that you feel are um, going to, to work against you. I mean, there's, there's a number of examples from even the 50s and 60s of, in particular, you know, right-wing media trying to start its own channels uh, such that they don't have to deal with uh, mainstream gatekeepers for their, for their news or for their information. And so, you know, it, it is, um, it's a viable strategy if you deny and you, you know, denigrate the institution. At least some group of persons out there who like you um, and like the, what you're doing uh, will believe just about anything. You know, people are very good motivated reasoners, and um, they'll come to a conclusion about the, the individual, in this case the president, first, and then make uh, all of the other ancillary decisions, uh, whether to support or tr- trust a certain uh, amount of information, regardless of, <laughs> regardless of what that individual is doing, in that case, the president. You mentioned that in, in past generations, a lot of this stuff was probably unknown to the public because we didn't watch press conferences with any regularity. Uh, how has, well, I guess two factors that would impact this. One, of course, the 24-hour news cycles, and there are news stations now, and those weren't there back in the LBJ days or even so much in the Nixon days, and social media, I, I think, have got to be two major factors in how this, this whole thing has changed. Yeah, absolutely. I, I continually wrestle with this, where are, are we at each other's throats more now because we just know more, or are things actually you know, more polarized than they've been in quite some time? And so I think you're absolutely right that the, the news cycle and the, the you know, almost unfettered access to information uh, has, has made us um, pay attention quite a bit more to, to what's been going on. 
Well, and the internet, obviously, and social media would play a part in that. You know, before that and before the advent of those and the popularity of those, uh, the only people that had platforms were the people that had a microphone and a television camera in front of them. Right now, anybody that can type on a computer has a platform. Absolutely right. I mean, barriers to um, information have, have never um, been lower, really. I mean, if you have a, a server and the ability to record something, you can have your own podcast and you can have your own hot take on the news. And so we're at, at the one time we're awash in information. We've never had more access. But what we don't have is necessarily a, a particularly good ability to sort out that information. And you know, since there, there are so many different conflicting takes on what is true, what is correct, um, it allows you to, to pick and choose the news that agrees with you. Well, and I, I, there's a problem here, I think, by, with definitions, too, wouldn't you think, Jacob? I mean, because there's a very, very fuzzy line right now between editorial comment and, and news reporting. That's absolutely right. I mean, the, the lines have been um, blurred uh, almost to a point where we're going back to a, a new partisan press era. You know, we, we saw something that I thought was a little stunning. You, you had, you know, two, two media uh, personalities, you know, standing next to the sitting president at a, at a rally and, and um, you know, putting on a, a partisan hat. I mean, they, they do that regularly when they're at Fox News or on, you know, uh, their, their own radio station. But at the same time, that, that's been a line that many in the press have been reluctant to, to cross. And, and I think that the, they're doing that with increasing regularity these days. Well, yeah, obviously, I mean, especially in two hours before that, Sean Hannity said he wasn't going to do that, yet there he was, you know, right up on the podium there for that big rally. Uh, but but again, people look at this and say, well, and, and, you know, the other side of that coin, of course, are the other, uh, people on the other side of the political spectrum that the, the president vilifies on a regular basis. Uh, but Chuck Todd is not a reporter. Chuck Todd is a commentator. And and as such, those are opinion pieces, and there's a lot more leeway there. And, and the president doesn't seem to understand the difference. Right, you know, the, there is this increasingly fuzzy line between, you know, advocacy journalism and uh, in straight news. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think it makes for a very confusing information environment. Where, where are the rules now? Who sets the rules on this? You're right, there was a protocol back in the day. And even though there might have been an adversarial relationship, I mean, you have the president of the time, whoever it might have been, I, I had to pretty much take it. Uh, and, and the reporters understood that, but there was a line that you couldn't cross. But it just seems that there are no rules, no holds barred now, especially in light of, of what we're seeing this week with the accusations right now that somebody doctored the, the video of, of the Acosta incident uh, to their benefit. And, and, and that seems to have caused, uh, well, basically putting gasoline on the, a fire that already existed. You're right. I think that most of the rule book has been thrown out the window, and it was always somewhat of an informal one to begin with. I mean, it was journalistic norms that were handed down through journalism schools, and it was, you know, a, an understanding of what the rules of the game were in terms of dealing with um, politicians and the like. And, and I think that with this increasingly adversarial, um, fraught relationship between the president and the press, that uh, the rule book is being thrown out in, in the quest for, for journalists to actually get a story. Um, you know, the First Amendment offers a lot of protections to uh, the, the, the press, and uh, what it does not do is guarantee access. And I think that's long been the uh, difficult part of the relationship between the press and, and politicians, which is, you know, you can, you're free to write and report on whatever you want, but politicians are also free to a certain extent to say, you know what, you know, I don't have to talk to you. And uh, that, that's always been sort of the, the fine line that reporters have to walk. And, you know, maybe sometimes they, they are a little bit too comfortable with the, the White House press corps because um, they need that access. 
Well, and, and that's obviously the key as far as those reporters or commentators are concerned, is they want to have that access. They want to be able to have those one-on-ones. And uh, you're right, that's up to the individual. And, and, and you know, to their side, just to, you know, to try to be fair in the discussion here, I, I've never met a politician that didn't want to control the narrative. I mean, that's that's what they want to do. They want the people to hear this message and these talking points, and they really don't want any anything that's going to blur that. So th- that's their mindset. We understand that. And at the same time, you've got reporters that may want just to get the truth and say, look, this is not really the truth. This is a this is a press release. I mean, somebody's idea, and I've talked to a lot of elected representatives over the years, Jacob, that just think that the press's job is to simply regurgitate the radio release we just put out there, and that's your story. And, and I don't think anybody in journalism with their, their salt is going to do that. I think that's right. I think they do that at times because of resource constraints. I mean, oh, sure. Uh, there, there's a hypothesis out there in the, the journalism world called the indexing hypothesis, which is you go to official sources because they know how to package the news for you. And it makes for a much easier story, particularly when you're writing lots more than you used to on you know, a lot of different topics because you just don't have the coverage that you used to in the, the good old days of, of large media entities. And so yeah, you're absolutely right. The politicians have always tried to control the narrative, and they're very calculated and very good at how they release stories, right? Have a big dump on Friday afternoon of all kinds of things. We don't want to end up in the news cycle, those types of tactics. Um, but it has been the job of the press to, to get around that and see through it, and when it matters, um, do investigative journalism. When are we going to stop this race to the bottom? Is there, is there, a, is there a bottom that we're going to hit where we're going to say, okay, enough of this nonsense? Uh, I really hope we're close to it. <laughs> uh, I mean, the the sort of FSB Russian style uh, editing of a video, uh, if that ends up actually being the case, and I, I think there's a pretty good argument to be made for it, uh, that is a, a new low that I don't even know that sort of a Nixon White House would have stooped to, although arguably the technology just wasn't available for him to do it. You know, we've you know long had presidents who've lied to the American public. We've had them who've hid things from the American public, but Releasing doctored information is is something that's uh, that's a little bit new, at least to my knowledge. But here we are, as as a as a society right now, analyzing this video, uh, which is about a minute and a half long, and and looking at this, and then it's it, this is like you know looking at a controversial touchdown in the Super Bowl, you know, from sixteen different angles. And <laughs> okay, stop there, you know, stop motion, slow motion on this. Uh, and, and I got to tell you, I, I don't know how much you've analyzed these, Jacob, but the the one that the White House released, the, the it is the controversial one. It uh, doesn't look like the original one, and if you see some of the photos, uh, the, the sequential photos they're taking, it doesn't jive with the, the the video that was released. So there's something going on here. I think that's right. So I, I saw uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' uh, statement around it, and then I watched one version of the video, and I couldn't really figure out what she was talking about. I just thought that you know she was trying to spin it in a particular way. Uh, and then I saw the edited version of the video, and it does look like there's a there there once you you know do some some what appears to be clever editing. And so, yeah, it um, it does seem to be something new. Um, I'm not a video expert though, so I can't claim to to say that you know I, I absolutely know that it was doctored. But gosh, it certainly does seem different. Something going on there. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. if nothing else, it provides fodder for Saturday Night Live, I guess, for the next few weeks. And but it did get a lot of questions as far as we, the public, are concerned. Uh, Jacob, thank you as always for this. I really appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Jacob Nyheisel, of course, Assistant Professor of uh, Political Science at University of Buffalo College of Arts. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This caught a lot of folks off guard. A federal judge in Montana granting an injunction to stop construction on the Trans-Canada Keystone XL pipeline. This happened yesterday. Uh, Brian Morris is the district judge in Montana. He wrote a 54-page order 
addressing allegations from indigenous and environmental groups alleging that the U.S. Department of State made several violations when it approved the $8 billion 19,000-kilometer uh, project. You just heard uh, Donald Trump, uh, just before he got on his plane to go over to France, commenting about this and saying this was a political decision. Uh, not really, uh, but obviously it's something that he okayed, so you know, he's going to slam the decision on this. But it's uh, it's it's going to cause some great consternation on both sides of the border, this this judge's decision. Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Morning, Ian. How are you doing today? Morning, Bill. Good. Listen, did this catch you off guard? It did. Uh, it, it did, um, because um, uh, not that the courts aren't independent, we all know that, but I, um, and I'm certainly not a lawyer, uh, but I had, uh, I, I mean, I've studied, uh, because I, I, t- I teach this, or I deal with this subject in my classes all the time, because my students are often choosing oil and gas companies or pipeline companies, and so as part of that process, I've my students have presented, and I've looked up data on my own, uh, on the whole pipeline industry, for example, and there is just an enormous number of pipelines in the United States. They're regulated, of course, federally. Uh, and, um, and in fact, during the Obama years, uh, I can't remember the exact number. It's not at my fingertips, but it was something like uh, eight, uh, was it eight million miles of pipelines were, were built? I mean, pipelines are being built all over because there's a lot of natural gas in the States. It's become the major energy um, uh, source uh, in the states uh, now that coal is really on the decline. And uh, so uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is uh, I always thought that the decision by Obama was much more ideological than it was legal in nature. And then Trump came in and issued his executive order uh, to uh, reverse that decision, and I thought it was pretty well, you know, signed, sealed, and delivered. And now this judge has issued this order, which I do believe will be appealed, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, I am absolutely certain Trump's people will appeal it. It will go to the Ninth Circuit Court, and then from there, if they lose, the, if they lose there, it will go to the Supreme Court. And uh, I have, <laughs> I'm pretty certain, I don't think it's very profound what I'm about to tell you, Bill, with all the people he's appointed and the, the conservatives who are already on that court, I don't think there's any doubt that that the uh, the court would uh, would support uh, Trump's uh, interpretation. So I think that this is a serious uh, roadblock. I mean, a delay in the uh, uh, in the process, but I think it will uh, be unblocked and it will go forward uh, eventually. Now, from a business standpoint, there's a, an argument to be made uh, here for this, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But Ian, your point's bang on. This has been a political football for years, hasn't it? Yep. I mean, you mentioned yeah. about the Obama administration. I mean, they, they were hedging on this. We're not sure if we're going to do it. And then the people that write checks for them or raise funds for them said, you know, the Leonardo DiCaprios and others said, don't do this. And and that seemed to put a full stop to it. And, of course, John Kerry, who was the Secretary of State at the time, said, no, this is not going to go forward. Uh, the other end of the political spectrum, Trump gets elected, and then bingo, bango, it's gone. Uh, so th- I, I'm not even sure. This is this is uh, not going to be settled with this decision. And as you say, they may go to the highest court in the land before they get a, a decision about this. Exactly, exactly. And and again, I don't. I just looked this up just while we were we were talking because I want to get this this number. Uh, the United States has built the equivalent of ten Keystone pipelines to, since 2010, uh, and, and nobody's protesting those. People don't realize there's pipelines being built all over the place in the states. I mean, there's 300 plus 300 million people in the states, and as the uh, FIMSA, which is the federal regulator of pipelines in the U.S., has shown it, without doubt, I mean, it's it's absolutely conclusive that pipelines are absolutely statistically and factually the safest way to ship so-called quote hazardous materials. 
and we're talking uh, oil and, and gas and so forth. And they have stats on there comparing uh, ship, shipment by rail, by truck, by, by pipeline, uh, going back to the origins of FIMSA, which I believe was in the 70s, uh, the, the legislative origin of this regulatory body. So they've got massive amounts of statistics from then to now. And uh, so in, tr- in trying to block, I mean, it, you just think, the more you think it through, the more it boggles the mind. I mean, as if the United States is going to stop using natural gas tomorrow. In Canada and the States, natural gas heats o- over 60% of homes. I mean, and, and office buildings. I mean, does anybody really think that we're suddenly going to stop heating homes across the U.S. and Canada um, or, or buildings or universities or you know, hospitals and office buildings uh, without natural gas? I mean, they got rid of, they're getting rid of coal as we speak. That's why the U.S., um, some people may have been puzzled in the last couple of years because the U.S. Is, uh, has produced a very serious decline in GHG emissions. And people are saying, hey, what's going on? Well, what's been going on is that the U.S. has been converting coal plant after coal plant after coal plant to, guess what, natural gas plants. Because natural gas is vastly cleaner than coal as a fossil fuel. And so here they are, and, and oil is also cleaner than, than coal. So here they are trying to shut down a, 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 a process, a medium of transportation that is safer than anything else uh, to, to ship oil or natural gas, and that incidentally is cleaner than coal. So as I said, it just boggles the mind that they're, they're trying to stop this. I mean, if they were going after coal, uh, the remaining coal plants, because there still are coal plants, I I would see what they were getting at, but I don't. I don't. I don't see what they're where they're going with this. Well, because there's a philosophical argument against this, and we all know what that is. And, and yep. there are it, you know, elements in the states, as there are in Canada. You may recall. I know you do, Ian. That well, a couple of years ago at the NDP convention, that was the one where they, they turfed uh, Tom Mulcair yeah. as their leader. Uh, they adopted the Leap Manifesto, which essentially says stop oil production right now, Just leave yeah. it in the ground as of today. Uh, which is just totally unrealistic and, and short-sighted. It would crash the economy. Obviously, you know, I'd, I'd be worried about how I'm going to heat my home this winter if that were to happen. Uh, just so- a quick figure for the benefit of your listeners, and I, this is data from the Canadian Ministry of um, Natural Resources. So this isn't an opinion. This is hard data from the government of Canada. Okay, 80% of the totality of energy in Canada is fossil fuel-based principally oil and natural gas because we've almost completely phased out coal and the states is moving very quickly towards phasing out coal so my point is 80 percent notwithstanding we have tons of rivers and hydroelectric and which is renewable and clean and not fossil fuel based notwithstanding our abundance of 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 uh, hydroelectric electricity such as james bay notwithstanding our nuclear uh, facilities across the country Eighty percent of all our energy needs in Canada, everything from heating hospitals, universities, your office, my home, your home, uh, of course our cars, our trucks, our planes, our, our, our transportation system, everything is organized around fossil fuels. So the argument that let's stop using it tomorrow morning is, is beyond, it's not that it would trash the economy, it would literally bring the economy to an end. I mean, how would you heat your home? 
how would you get food to the to the Loblaws stores across Canada and the Metro stores and the and the, uh, the you know and and the, the Sobe stores and so on? I mean, the entire infrastructure of the economy is built on uh, the fossil fuel uh, uh, source of uh, energy, and and that's not going to change. It's going to change one day, but it's going to change over a very long period of time, and not because of a legal decision or or a policy platform decision at uh, at at at, an, at a political party convention. Well, the other element to this too is for those that are looking for alternatives and saying, yeah, we need to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. I don't think it, too many people are disagreeing. Yeah, we probably need to do that, right. but it's got to be done incrementally. I mean, if, if we uh, we learned one thing over the last couple of years here, and for instance, when you come to automobiles and vehicles, uh, the the alternative technology in that situation, which is apparently is electric, is not ready yet. It's not where right. it needs to be to be a replacement for it. Not only is it not ready, let me throw another, because the more I look at this, because I like to look at the stats, because I'm trying to get a handle on the big picture. There's 33 million cars and trucks registered in Canada. Says who? Uh, Transport Canada in its annual report to Parliament. If, can you imagine, and by the way, uh, electric vehicles are just a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of annual car sales. I believe it's 100,000 a year. Can you imagine if we converted 33 million cars and trucks to electric, to, to, to using electricity? We would crash the grid in Canada. It was never built to produce electricity to drive 33 million cars and trucks. It was produced, generated and built and developed over the years to do what we do. We have electricity going to every house for our computers and our television sets and, and so forth and in our office buildings, but it was never designed to fuel, to, to drive the transportation industry. What I'm trying to argue is not that it can never be done. My point is it's going to take years to build out and build up the new infrastructure for the day when we eventually move from uh, fossil fuel-based cars to, to electric cars. And I don't doubt it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen. For anybody who thinks it's going to happen in one or two or five years, they are dreaming it's going to take a half a century or more to build out that kind of an infrastructure. And as a result, we still do need to have Precisely. fossil fuels. <laughs> so that's that's part A of that argument. Part yeah. B, how do you get it to market? And and this is this is where your point is so germane to what's going on here. Uh, you know, everybody that says we got to stop pipelines, do we need to see the pictures of Lac-Megantic again? Is yeah. that how you want to transport it? Do you want to see the the tanker trucks going up and down the highway with this stuff? I don't exactly. think so. And 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 for those who say, oh, that's just a straw man argument, it's not. If you actually look at the amount of oil being shipped by rail, it boggles the brain. And they're shipping it through the Rockies on those very treacherous rail tracks, you know, that are hanging on the side of the mountain. And how anybody with a sense of responsibility could say, oh, yeah, let's try and stop pipelines so we can ship it through the Rockies on rail cars. And, of course, they will, their weak excuse is, no, 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 I don't want that either. But that is the consequence, because it's going to get shipped. The only question is, how is it going to get shipped? We're either going to send it by rail, or we're going to send it by pipe, or we're going to send it by a truck. <laughs> and the pipe is by far and away the safest. Uh, and the stats, these are government stats on both sides of the border, showing that pipelines are vastly safer than uh, per, per shipping kilometer mile, or whatever it's called, per kilometer, uh, than any other method of shipping this stuff. And, and the other advantage, to put it and not to be too crass, but pipelines, with the exception of the spurs that run into each city to deliver natural gas to Ottawa or Toronto or Hamilton, they rooted pipelines in the last 40, 50 years around the big cities, out in the 
countryside and the flora and the fauna, where I like to put it a bit flippantly, where there's a lot of mosquitoes and black flies. Whereas railroad infrastructure was built 150 years ago, and where did they root it? right down through the downtown of every little village and city and big city in Canada. So when one of these things blows up, it really does serious damage. But when a pipe leaks in the middle of nowhere, it kills off some black flies and mosquitoes. Now, I know I'm being a little bit flippant, but you don't hear of those kinds of catastrophic deaths uh, when you have a pipeline leak in Canada. You just don't, whereas you do hear that from railroad, uh, for example, uh, uh, railroad um, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, crises such as occurred with uh, Megantic. Well, and and to the point on leaks, and again, I'm not trying to be flippant or dismissive about this either. Yeah, leaks do occur, uh, but not to the frequency that the, the opponents of this would have you believe. I mean, planes crash too, but that doesn't stop us from flying. Precisely. You know, it does happen from time to time. Uh, but, it, you know, and then like you say, what I think they've tried to do, the industry's tried to do, is minimalize that. Uh, yes. To the point and very where successfully exactly. I was. I want to tell you a quick story, Bill. I was on Power and Politics about. Uh, uh, excuse me, not Power and Politics on CBC on the on the money. I was on there as a regular for some okay, time. Yeah. And when Amanda Lang was on there, she had me on one night, and we were talking on this very identical subject. And the argument was about pipelines that they could lead to the death of people if the pipeline leaked. So what I did was like before I knew we were going to be talking about that. So I went and looked up death by mortal type of mortality uh, from Safcan. In other words, how do we die? And um, uh, these are aggregates, of course. And it was fascinating. I mean, 2,200 people a year die annually in car automobile accidents. Nobody is suggesting we ban automobiles. 2,200 people a year do not die from pipeline accidents. Actually, zero die from pipelines. Then you look at, I looked at, it didn't stop there. 450 people a year die in beaches, swimming pools, rivers, lakes. Are we really going to shut down all the rivers and lakes and swimming pools in Canada because 450 people die every year? Another 100 a year or so die on bicycles. I'm not trying to trivialize these. I mean, it's, it, these are tragedies to every family that lost that person. But my point is, we don't shut down and go back to, you know, the Stone Age uh, and say, gee, we can't have bicycles, you know, we can't have airplanes, uh, we can't, <laughs> you know, we can't have cars, we can't have trucks, uh, because uh, some people die from these technologies, which is true, they do. We don't shut them down. We try to make them safer for sure, which is what we should be doing. And we've done a remarkable job in making pipelines far safer than really any other form of uh, transportation technology. We should also mention here that there have been changes to uh, to to the qualifications for this and and pretty stringent guidelines as to how these things are constructed. It's not as if they just go over hill and dale and just put this thing wherever they want. And and exactly. what I find frustrating about this is uh, some of the ones that are being blocked right now. I know Trans Mountain comes to mind here out in Canada's west coast. Uh, it's it's a twinning of of an existing pipeline. Exactly. Exactly. They're building it literally beside an existing pipeline. And they're not saying, tear down the existing pipeline, which may seem, would be obviously seen as very radical. But my point is, the existing pipeline is 30, 40 years old. I believe it was about 30, 40 years ago. The latest, from what I've read, and I'm saying this as a non-engineer, but I can understand, you know, technology somewhat, that the, the, the latest materials they're using are much more sophisticated. They're much more durable. They have many, many more sensors so that they, they detect the leak much more rapidly than before. They can shut down the pipe because they have uh, pumps at, at, at every, you know, several kilometers along the way. They can shut it down. So what they've done is each leak, the average spill, 
bill of, of fuel has been reduced year by year by year. So not only are they reducing the number of incidents, but they're reducing the amount of the lost oil or gas per incident because of these increasingly sophisticated technologies that they're using. So if anything, we should be demanding and protesting that they re- rebuild the old pipelines with new modern uh, high-tech pipelines that are much safer than the old pipelines. Well, this is going to continue. The debate's going to continue. The fight's going to continue. Uh, and I don't think anybody is suggesting, certainly not you nor I, that this is perfect, uh, that there aren't going to be some blips right. and some concerns. I mean, it, with anything that's man-made, there are going to be blips and concerns. Absolutely. But we have an economy, we have a society that still needs fossil fuels. As of this day, in 2018, we still need fossil fuels. And to suggest that we just shut off the tap and don't do this anymore is ludicrous, really. It, it is. In fact, I'm very proud. I tell people I'm proud that I, I mean, I've switched as much as possible to natural gas because I know, yeah. I've done my research, we all know it is the cleanest of the fossil fuels, vastly cleaner than coal, significantly cleaner than oil, and Canadians and the stats even show it in our take-up rate. Every year goes by, the number of Canadians who have switched to natural gas goes up, up, up. It's up to over 65% of Canadians now. Uh, and, of course, that's partly, you know, as pipe gets rolled out to these smaller towns and communities uh, across Canada. But my point is, Canadians are responding, and, and I think that by installing, you know, natural gas, it's a prudent and responsible act by individuals and by businesses simply because it is so much safer and so much cleaner than alternative fuel technologies. And we are developing alternative technologies. I mean, you know, like we both said, I mean, electric cars aren't ready yet. They're just not ready for the kind of uh, work that we need. Hybrids technology is starting to evolve and people are starting to lean towards that. You're right, the sales aren't there yet, but that's a a possibility. So we're going in the right direction, but we're not there yet. I mean, that's as a matter of fact, and if we take the fossil fuels out, we're not going anywhere. Exactly. And and it's going to be incremental. Anyone who thinks we're going to, you know, sweep at the pen because a parliamentary passes a bill or something, and all of a sudden we dump 33 million cars and trucks um, and, and replace them, we're just not. It's the nature of it is going, drives incrementality. You know, we replace our cars when it gets older. One day, I'll probably buy an electric car one day, but I don't think they're there yet. When they become competitive, not only in terms of price, but in terms of, you know, how long it takes to fuel up and how long the fuel up lasts for, meaning can I fuel up in five minutes like a gas tank fill up or does it take 12 hours to recharge and will it only go 100 kilometers instead of 400 kilometers these are things that people look at and when those metrics get better and better and they are improving all the time more of us will start to switch but it's going to take literally I think 50 years to do at least 50 years to do the transformation because they've also got to build out the entire electrical grid across Canada to, to provide the massive increase in electricity that's going to be needed to fuel those 33 million cars and trucks. Well, I mean, yeah, because right now the technology is, I mean, from downtown Ottawa, Ian, you can drive out to Canada in an electric car and have a great day with it. But if you want to go yeah. to Toronto, it's going to take you a day and a half. Exactly, I'm, exactly. That's the problem. That is the problem. And, of course, most of us use our cars for both. I mean, majority of our trips are local short trips, as the environmentalists tell us. But what they forget to tell you is, yes, but once or twice a month we take a long trip, and we don't want to get halfway there and run out of juice in the middle of the 401 and miles away from a service center. You know, that's the, these are the realities that we individuals confront. Ian Lee at the Sprott School of Business. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.